BDC, the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs, is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women-building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Jess Dasanayaika is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Bino Books, an ebook company that exists to help children understand complex topics while engaging them in the content where they truly see themselves by offering personalized characters who can look just like them. And from our research, we learned that children get more engaged when they see characters that look like them or when they hear their name in the story. We manually customize books for our beta group of testers. And so each book was customized to look just like the child, whether it was through their skin tone, hair color, hairstyle, etc. Bino Books is inspired by Jess's own experiences, navigating both the academic and professional world as a woman of color. Are diversity, equity, and inclusion a destination or a journey for organizations? How can leaders ensure they're working towards these outcomes and what systems must be put in place to ensure that employees feel represented, respected, appreciated, and safe? That's where our topic expert, Camille Dundas, comes in. As a racial equity educator, Camille teaches and leads teams towards being more diverse, inclusive, and equitable. I can see and viscerally feel how important representation is because I have two small children. And the look in my daughter's eyes when she sees Karma on Netflix, for example, and says, mom, look, she's brown like me, or her hair is like my hair. It's both heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time, you know, because I love that for her. I love that she can see herself, but it also reminds me of how little she gets to have that. In this conversation, we define diversity, equity, and inclusion, explore Jess and Camille's personal connections to the topic, and arrive at better understandings of representation, identity, and intersectionality. 
Welcome to the show, Jess and Camille. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. So Jess, in your mission for Beano Books, you know, it's very simple, but very, very powerful. You wanted your nieces and your nephews to really see themselves in storybooks. And, you know, you've mentioned that you wish that you yourself as a child had seen more characters that look like you when you were young. Tell us more about this sort of inception story of Beano Books, where it started and where you're at now. Yeah, definitely. So we founded Beano Books, myself and my two co-founders, Danielle and Sydney, through Um, an innovation program at Queen's University, uh, specifically targeted at creating solutions for problems that had arisen during the pandemic. So for our team, uh, we really resonated with helping young families um, and specifically helping young children who were struggling to understand the pandemic. So um, upon having empathy interviews with our users, we learned that existing resources were too scientific, not engaging, and children weren't really interested with learning uh, what the pandemic was all about and how to stay safe. So uh, we developed our solution basically to help uh, explain the pandemic to young children in an age-appropriate and engaging way. So we started off by creating a beta storybook, which we illustrated in-house, wrote ourselves, Um, explaining key topics about the pandemic, things like social distancing and washing hands. Um, And we tied that in with a personalization aspect where the characters would look like the child. And from our research, um, we learned that uh, children get more engaged when they see characters that look like them or when they hear their name in the story. So uh, we manually customized books for our beta group of testers. Um, And so each book was customized Um, to look just like the child, whether it was through their skin tone, hair color, hairstyle, etc. So right now we've released one product to the market, which is Humans Can't Fly, which is a book on body image um, and promoting uh, body positivity to young children. And we currently are um, about to release by the end of this year um, another storybook that my sister and I wrote. Um, And this book is more focused on um, consent culture and teaching children about body boundaries. And so ultimately, the mission of Beano Books is um, having customizable e-storybooks on traditionally tough topics and then facilitating conversations between parents and their young children um, through the use of customization. Unbelievable. And to see the technology that you've utilized here in such a thoughtful and, you know, such a needed way. I feel like I needed those books during the pandemic to even understand (laughs) these rules myself. Uh, So I'm so excited to to continue to watch this evolution of the products that you launched, Jess. Unbelievable. Thank you. Uh, And so Camille, you know, as a a racial equity educator, um, you know, and, and based on your experience to date, clearly this mission resonates with you really fully. Um, Why does representation sort of occupy this space for you? Why is it so front and center in the work that you do? And why is it so important? Well, that resonates with me on a personal level, because I can see and viscerally feel how important representation is because I have two small children. And the look in my daughter's eyes when she sees Karma on Netflix, for example, and says, mom, look, she's brown like me, or her hair is like my hair. It's both heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time, you know, because I love that for her. I love that she can see herself, but it also reminds me of how little she gets to have that. She's bombarded every day with the message 
that white skin and long straight hair is the most desirable thing. Children can feel from a very young age who gets loved, who gets attention, who gets valued. And so that's why in my household, I'm extremely intentional, militant, in fact, about Black representation in the media that my kids consume and the kids and the, the toys that my kids play with. And it might seem extreme to some people when I say that I only buy Black and brown dolls for my daughter, for example, or that I actively seek out dolls and books that feature genderqueer kids and kids with disabilities. But for me, it is what is necessary to counter the narrative that we've been living in for so long, a narrative which is set up to glorify white, cis, and non-disabled. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in your, your work, what prompted you to go down this path in building your own businesses and solving this, not only you know as an educator, but within the corporate institutions you work with? Walk us through that journey a little oh. bit. Um, you know, it's it's I, I can't say that they were intentional career choices. Um, the, they never are, are they? Yeah. <laughs> my, my career started off in, in television news media. Um, I, I'm a journalist and I started in traditional legacy media, as we call it now. Um, and that gave me a front row seat to how these narratives are constructed, both intentionally and subconsciously. And so the more and more I began to uncover these things, it became difficult and almost impossible for me to remain part of that system that utilizes my labor to uphold unjust systems. It became very difficult for me to reconcile um, those things. And so the more research I did on my own, the more I got asked to speak about these things, uh, my my career just sort of naturally went in that direction. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And in today's conversation, I think approaching, you know, some of the the best practices and, you know, the the programming that you've developed, especially with this new partnership with Dalhousie, I'd love to do a deeper dive in that and having a general conversation around entrepreneurship and the diversity of perspective and the diversity of voices we need to see in the businesses that we're building, because that creates infrastructure, that creates the systems in which we operate. Um, So I'm really sort of excited about exploring this very colorful conversation from all of those different angles because there's so much to unpack here. Uh, so we'll do the best that we can in a short period of time. So Jess, passing it back to you as an entrepreneur, um, what has your experience been um, navigating some of the hurdles of, of being um, a woman in tech first and foremost um, and, and trying to potentially navigate this really challenging system that, that is not necessarily built for women or women of color? For sure. Um, Yeah, I think it really goes back to um, my post-secondary education. Um, Going to a school that was predominantly white was uh, challenging for me. And then going into tech, which is already a male-dominated field, um, definitely feelings of imposter syndrome come up. Um, And I felt that all throughout my degree and uh, towards when I was about to graduate and uh, really figure out what career path I wanted to take. Um, thinking about going into the corporate world and into tech um, was scary. Um, Imposter syndrome, again, is like that key term of um, not feeling like you quite belong into the space that you're entering. Um, So at the same time, I started to think about where would I really be able to bring value and feel like I had some sort of space and um, entrepreneurship was one of those paths I decided to try out. 
Um, that being said, the programs that I um, participated in as an uh, early stage entrepreneur were predominantly white, predominantly male. Um, and while there was value for uh, people of color and women of color, um, it's still there's different hurdles that you have to navigate. So um, I think that's a, a new type of imposter syndrome came up um, entering the entrepreneurship world. Um, quite different from what I've seen in the tech world, but still um, present, I guess. And um, and it's all due to not seeing people that really look like me or have had uh, shared lived experiences. And so um, when I did ever come across a woman of color, maybe a more established entrepreneur um, that would then turn into mentors, um, it's really validating to see the steps that they have taken and the success that they've found in the space. Um, and it's also inspiring to me to continue to do that for the next generation of entrepreneurs as well. Absolutely. We talk about, you know, entrepreneurship being lonely and not seeing, um, you know, as much diversity in some of these spaces like in tech or in the trades or, you know, there are a number of different industries we see that in. Uh, but I think that's a really important message that if, if our listeners are feeling that sense of, um, you know, additional barriers and, and really not seeing people that look like them that have that type of shared lived experience, um, you know, that that is what we're talking about here today. And, and we're here to, you know, have that conversation openly and see what we can do to uh, fill in some of those spaces. Camille, when you talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think just starting this conversation with terminology and um, some definitions might be really helpful for some people that think this conversation is very overwhelming to enter into. Um, some people get very uncomfortable, um, especially as white uh, you know, women coming into this conversation. There's sort of this trepidation and uh, maybe some, some nerves there. So how do you define diversity, equity, and inclusion? Where does accessibility fit into there? What type of terminology do you use in your work, Camille? I use these terms simply because they are the terms that are available to us now. And I think that these definitions of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, et cetera, have been talked to death. So I won't belabor them here. And, and they're also easy to look up. I will say that mm. one of the best reframing of these terms and one that I always keep in mind is from a DEI expert named Lily Zhang, which I encourage you all to follow on LinkedIn. Their name is spelled L-I-L-Y Zhang, Z-H-E-N-G. And they encourage us to see DEI in terms of outcomes. So diversity, it's an outcome. Either your workplace has achieved that outcome or not. Inclusion, also an outcome. Either the people you work with feel a sense of belonging in the workplace or not. Equity, an outcome. Either your workplace has done the work to ensure every person has the tools and systems that they need in order to succeed, or you have not. And I like this framing because it moves the definition of these terms from an academic one to a tangible one. I'll also offer this, the terms, diversity and inclusion can be problematic. And I realized this a few years ago when I started thinking about, you know, where did these terms come from? And in my research, I found that, of course, diversity and inclusion is a practice, as a practice is nothing new. It's been around for several decades. And these terms were created by white male academics. I thank them. But most of the terms we use in DNI work in fact, were created by white men in academia. And so I started to think, when we say DNI, what are we really saying? Diversity 
from what? Inclusion into what? Even this phrase itself centers whiteness as the norm, centers white people as the standard by which everything else should be folded into. And so it's no surprise to me that this has become problematic and polarizing because unconsciously, or maybe sometimes quite consciously, white people can feel a little annoyed that they have to go out of their way to accommodate anyone who is not white. That's what it's setting you up to, to feel. And this is one of those unconscious beliefs that may be very un un unsettling for you to confront, but it's very important to sit with. And how do you enter into those conversations with people that might be uncomfortable? I'm, I'm curious how you bring that to the table and how it's received from an action-oriented standpoint that, you know, we see so many organizations and, you know, startups, traditional startups saying, well, we have, you know, one woman on our leadership team who is white and that checks a diversity, equity and inclusion kind of box. Like we see this approach um, becoming almost tokenistic and, and, and um, really problematic in that people are not... Um, they're not approaching it from the, from the right lens and also from a fear-based standpoint that they feel they're going to get called out for, you know, not um, adhering to what is a very important topic that we're talking about over the last couple of years. How do you have these conversations without people's guards sort of going up when they feel uncomfortable in that space? I don't. I don't have conversations without people's guards going up. And that's, that's not my goal. My goal is, is not to, to center your discomfort. However, what I do at the beginning of every conversation is to lead with my own humility because I think that's important for everyone to lead with humility. And when I say that, what I mean is that even though I've been working and practicing in this field for some time, I don't know everything and I make mistakes. And so in all of, all of those conversations, I lead by revealing some of my own mistakes, some of my own missteps, some of my own biases that make me hella uncomfortable that I have them. But I lead with that because it, 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 in my experience, it has helped to diffuse the, the atmosphere in the room that, oh, someone is coming in to tell us how terrible we are and we need to listen and nod. Whereas, no, I'm going to tell you how all of us have upheld this unjust system in one way or the other. We have inflicted injustice on another group, unconsciously or consciously. All of us have done it, no matter where we stand on the privileged scale because our system is set up in such a way that we are all clawing at this scale, right? To achieve, to acquire what we need. And so it's no surprise that we've all been in a position where we've oppressed somebody else. And so I lead with that knowledge and I hope that that helps people to focus on the outcomes instead of focusing on whatever guilt comes up for them in that moment.
Mm, I love that invitation. I think that's a really helpful prompt for our listeners to to become open in this conversation even and just being receptive to to that conversation. I love that prompt, Camille. Thank you for sharing that. Jess, um, when we talk about... um, you know, your journey in approaching this conversation to children, what does that look like? You know, with Bino Books, looking at intersectionality, looking at um, so many different layers of uh, personalization and, and looking at different experiences of the folks that, that you're serving. Um, what has that been, that experience been for you? Has there been any kind of eye-opening moments in that, that journey using that technology? Yeah, definitely. So intersectionality is a really big part of um, what we're doing at Bino Books, but as an early stage um, startup, we've had to kind of uh, approach it in stages. So uh, for example, with our first book, um, we were manually drawing out each uh, storybook. So there was only so much in customization that we could do. And as we go on with uh, more and more books, we're trying to implement more and more different types of customizations. So um, at the start, uh, we knew that race was a really big one that we wanted to um, address through uh, customizable skin tones, um, as well as um, gender identity through pronouns where um, we left the box. It wasn't a, you know, select which pronoun you wanted. It was an open text field uh, where people could put whichever pronouns they preferred. Um, and then with further and further books, um, we've always kept families at the core of our venture. So um, having those um, user interviews with families after they uh, read our book or before they read our book um, and have the customizations applied, uh, we've learned a lot. So, for example, with the first book, we um, interviewed several families and uh, we were given feedback that um, we needed different eye shapes. We needed uh, more black hairstyles, for example. Um, we had a parent character that was customizable in one of our books. And uh, we had people um, explaining uh, how our biracial family is going to be addressed, how our different family uh, dynamics going to be addressed in our books. So as we release more and more books, we're really addressing those. So uh, for example, with our first book, uh, we had additional hairstyles to account for those black hairstyles, for example, include locks. Um, and we got a lot of great feedback from uh, families of color saying that they uh, felt that there were much more options that represented what their child looked like. And then um, in our upcoming book, for example, we're addressing uh, certain disabilities. So we're um, including hearing aids, diabetes patches. Um, In future books, we'd love to have uh, wheelchair options, service dogs. And so we're really trying to cover more and more um, of uh, the intersectionality circle, as people call it. Um, But we've had to take that in stages. Um, It's uh, ultimately a journey uh, with each book. Um, implementing more and more customizations to uh, cover a broader range of identities. Amazing. And Camille, from your perspective, how are you approaching intersectionality? How are you talking about intersectionality um, and why it matters within all of these conversations that you're having? Being of multiple marginalized identities can create even greater disadvantages for someone. And the reason this is important about important to think about in a workplace setting is that, you know, very often when we're trying to focus on diversity and inclusion, we tend to think of very narrow categories, gender, race, gender expression. So if I'm in a workplace where the DNI strategy only focuses on putting women first, it's very likely that that strategy is ignoring the ways in which I am specifically discriminated against because I am a black woman 
not just a woman. Think about, for example, how a white cisgender woman experiences discrimination and how that will be vastly different from how a black trans woman experiences discrimination. Even though they are both part of the women group, their vastly different experiences can't be painted with the same brush. And we would have to address the types of discrimination each of them faces with more nuanced solutions. We can't apply the same solutions. The gender pay gap is a perfect example of this. Very often I'll see think pieces, articles, you know, talking about how, oh, the, gen the pay gap is shrinking. You know, like women are doing so much better. And very often in those analyses, the experience of racialized women, indigenous women, women with disabilities, women with neurodiversities are erased. Racialized women earn even less than white women and so on and so on and so on. They are also more likely to be underemployed. And that means holding jobs that are not reflective of their experience and education, right? So when these stats and studies are coming out, is it really that women, all women are, are doing better or are we just talking about white women? That's the uncomfortable part, right? <laughs> but that's the part that needs to be said out loud. <laughs> so an intersectional view uh, on this issue would explore solutions to ensure women in other subgroups can achieve equal pay to their white counterparts, right? We, we, we aren't just looking at one group. That's why intersectionality is important in, in a workplace when you're trying to apply solutions. And even the data that we try to acquire, you know, looking at women in the workplace, et cetera, we often do not even look at the intersectionalities or look beyond just, you know, do, I, do you identify as a woman or a man as well? And then sort of patting ourselves yeah. on the back for the progress that mm -hmm. has been perceived to be made um, to say that, you know, we're moving the needle. It's, it's mm -hmm. such an important point. Um, and to our audience, so if you are, you know, a, a women-led organization, you're maybe making your first handful of hires, you're looking to really approach this um, thoughtfully and, and to have intersectionality in mind, to look at, you know, true diversity, creating true inclusivity, where do you start in that conversation, Camille? What are some um, practical prompts or recommendations you could give to that new founder that's looking to build their team, perhaps? Well, that's a big, big question um, because there are so many places to start um, and that will differ for every organization based on, on where you are, right? And based on what is your goal? What is your business goal? How are you determining whether you have an inclusive or a diverse workforce? What does that mean for you? How are you measuring it? Are you measuring it against the national population? Are you measuring it against your peers, uh, your industry? You have to, to pick something and, and work towards it. But in terms of one of the first places that I, I see organizations starting, or I often advise organizations to start, is to look at their hiring practices and specifically job descriptions. And I know it may sound radical, but you can actually just remove requirements like a university degree or X years of experience. And these things seem less radical once you start to examine how arbitrary they are as requirements and how they are intentional barriers to equity. 
I see job descriptions all the time for entry-level roles requiring three years of experience. How does that even make sense? Where are they getting this experience for an entry-level role? And I'm seeing global companies like Google completely remove university degrees as a requirement. So if they can do it, we can also do it. Because it's obvious that people can do like 90% of jobs without a university degree. I'm excluding, you know, like medical professional, legal professional, you know, I'm excluding those, right? Higher education is a huge barrier to equity because it's expensive and out of reach for many people. And it is absolutely not an indicator of your intelligence or your ability to do a job. In fact, I would argue that even a high school diploma should not always be a requirement on many different jobs. I'll give you a real example. I personally know someone, a black man, let, let's call him David. David is originally from Barbados, but he's been living in Canada for more than 20 years. He went to high school in Barbados, graduated from high school there, etc. David recently applied for a job with the city parks and rec department, right? The job is clearing the parks of refuse, emptying garbage bins, that sort of thing. It's a highly sought after job because any job with the government, as you know, has really good benefits. So David gets to the end of a lengthy interview process. They offer him the job. He's really happy. He's like, great. Then they say, oh, we just need to see your high school diploma to verify that you graduated from high school. He's like, oh, well, yeah, I went to high school in Barbados and that was over 20 years ago. I don't have that piece of paper. They're like, don't worry about it. We'll hold on to this job for you until you're able to get a copy. It takes David several weeks and several hundred dollars to finally get a hold of this piece of paper. When he returns, they say to him, oh, okay, now we need to credentialize your diploma since it's not from Canada, meaning they need to send it to someone to certify that it meets Canadian education standards. Meanwhile, mind you, Barbados has one of the highest literacy rates per capita in the world. Just add that. By the time all of this gets done, several months have passed. Then the final blow, they say to David, hey, buddy, sorry, you know what? We have to fill that role. You'll have to start this interview process all over again once another role becomes available. Unbelievable. Right. <laughs> Very mind-blowing because that's, that's how inequity works, right? And we have this idea that, oh, this is a this is a job picking up garbage. And I've heard people say before, oh, if you try hard enough, you can get a job picking up garbage. You can do anything. You can do, people just don't want to work. Da -da 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 -da. But these are the real barriers in place. Hmm. And I can completely see that somebody, you know, adding that that one line, those 10 words on a job description would not necessarily pull on that string and think of the potential impact that could have in the process in eliminating candidates that then, you know, are, are self-selecting out because they don't fit something that could be potentially completely irrelevant that, you know, to the role itself. So that's a really helpful prompt, I think, to our listeners. These can be very small elements of your hiring practice or, you know, in your organization as a whole. We don't need to think of, you know, 10 elements of a huge, massive strategy. There are so many different approaches that we can make incrementally once we build some of this awareness and even thinking of, you know, the lived experience of, of the example that you've just provided. Um, Jess, do you have any other examples or 
um, you know, lived experience in, in that space as well, talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and some of maybe the lessons that you've learned in, in building, um, you know, some of these characters that um, are trying to, to really be more diverse in, in how they're displayed. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, coming from a university background, um, I was very privileged to have that experience. And uh, a lot of the job postings when I was at that career crossroads uh, near graduation were uh, very much targeted towards university um, degrees, not even college degrees. And coming from a computer science background, um, I know many people in my field that have a college education or done a certificate online, taught themselves, and they probably have far more experience and skills than I do in that space. So uh, when we were hiring for our illustrator for our books, for Bino Books, we made a very conscious effort in uh, how we um, wrote our job description, uh, very similar to what Camille was talking about, um, removing that um, education requirement and rather um, asking for people who have experience or are willing to learn those skills. Um, something that I've been told in the past is that some skills can be taught, but attitude is something that can't be taught. So very much you're trying to look for someone that's a good character fit and willing to learn those skills. Um, and it's a worthy investment for the organization to have someone that you know, is um, like character wise, a good fit and willing to learn the skills needed for the job and not necessarily has to come in with all of those skills. So when we were hiring our illustrator, um, we were very careful with our job description and also how we advertise the position as well. We didn't want to be just posting to university job boards, for example. We were pretty broad in our scope, reaching out to different equity organizations, posting on different social media platforms, trying to get that outreach into um, a, to a broader uh, range of candidates and lived experiences. And we saw that reflection in um, the applications we received. Um, it was pretty obvious um, that we were getting all sorts of identities and um, that intersectionality was really covered. Um, we saw in a lot of applications and that was also a sign that people were also passionate about our message at Bino Books and how we're trying to represent all those identities because we had so many illustrators reaching out saying, hey, I really identify with this as a person of color, a person that lives with a disability or um, an intersection of those different types of identities. Um, so being really conscious with job descriptions and also um, where you're spreading those uh, job postings, I think is really important. Um, an example of how I had to remind myself to follow my own advice um, at By Blacks, we were hiring um, a digital content creator, right? And this is a role that has had so much turnover at our company. And I think be it's because I was rely over relying on you know on university programs and processes to look for candidates. I felt well, I need a candidate who has a journalism background because I need them to understand, you know, like how to frame these stories on social media. Like I had this hang up that the person had to have a journalism program. And so I partnered with Ryerson and with U of T and with here and there. And to be honest, the candidates that came through were, were shitty most of the time. They, they, they didn't have the it I was looking for. And I was so frustrated. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't. I was repeating like all the things that like corporate... Canada <laughs> that I hear like, oh, we just can't find anyone. Like, I just can't. Oh, it's so hard. And I'm like, wait a minute. What, the, what, what are you doing? And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to post this job on Instagram. I'm going to go to the place where people who are, I think, who 
would like to do this job are living and working. They're living on social media. I posted on Instagram, on TikTok, and on LinkedIn. And the explosion of applications that I got, I was like, holy shit, look at all these applicants. They're like, I had to sift through almost like 90 something applicants up from like five when I was just dealing with the universities, right? And I was like, wow, this is a huge difference. And I never had put, you know, like needs a university degree, whatever. But in my mind, I was like, okay, I want, I want someone. So I'm going to admit that I had that bias, right? So it's not always about just what you put on the job description. It's what you actually do, right? And so I removed that. I didn't even ask in the interview, what's your educational experience? I didn't ask about it. I asked instead to submit to me, here's an example of a type of post I would want. How would you approach this? Or like send me a sample of, of something that you've recently done, like on TikTok or whatever, whatever. And I compared the skill and went with the person who I felt had the skill mixed with the passion for the type of stories that we tell. And the person who is now in this role for more than six months, which was like a huge improvement. <laughs> from before. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and, and that's a, an important lesson, even just outside of today's conversation with entrepreneurs building businesses to, to, you know, we get tunnel vision often sometimes and we think, you know, we're just going to keep doing something a particular way and hope for a different result. Um, but you need to change up those variables. And that's entrepreneurship. That's building businesses. You have to be, you know, iterating all the time and not holding on to the way that you do things um, and, and holding even, your, you know, your ego into that part of the conversation, too, because, you know, that can often uh, be one of the biggest barriers for us to say we got that wrong and I'm just going to hold on to it so that nobody knows <laughs> that I'm going to admit to potentially doing something. Um, so that's a great kind of overall message for, for those that are building businesses in general. Thanks for, for that illustration, Camille. Jess, from you know a children's perspective, obviously we want to be having these conversations earlier as well, that children's books are such an important educational tool um, and, and to feel that sense of connection and you know, to see people who look and, and have a lived experience similar to you is such an important to, sort of opportunity that that vehicle could provide. Um, as a part of that journey, you mentioned that you did a lot of research, obviously, at Bino Books, determining the value that children really gain from seeing characters that mirror their identity um, in those storybooks. Can you share some of those findings with us and, and how that might be relevant to entrepreneurship um, and walk us through what, what you learned? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at Bino Books, we decided to um, allow our books to be customized so that the characters could really see, uh, not the characters, sorry, so the children could see themselves through uh, the characters in the story. And so we did our own personal research through uh, talking with different families and um, showing them a version of the book that wasn't customized for their child versus was customized and seeing uh, the difference in how the children approach that book. But there is also already existing research, um, like scientific research on personalized books and how children respond to them. And um, there has been findings of in, uh, an increase in the child's attention span, their vocabulary, and just their general enjoyment of the story through smiles and laughs. I love that. You measured smiles and laughs as a variable. That's, that's, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Quantified smiles and laughs. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yeah, ultimately, the personalization helps the child to really focus on uh, the topic better in the story. And so for us, where we're um, touching on those traditionally tough topics, things like, um, you know, body image, as I was saying, or consent culture, which is a little bit more difficult to talk to your child about, 
um, having the customizable characters and the names and the pronouns in the story is a way for the child to connect to the story. Um, it's pretty much the, with the concept of being just seen and heard, right? We experience that as adults and it's the same with children as well. And Camille mentioned it with her children identifying with characters in different shows and stories. And as a person of color, that was something that um, I also, I had that same reaction when I was growing up and I still see that in my young nieces and nephews. So um, yeah, ultimately um, getting children to really focus on the story through that customization is a really key piece. I love it. Oh, that's great. And Camille, sort of bridging that into your world, are there any similarities here when we look at the importance of diversity and inclusion as adults in the professional workspaces, in entrepreneurship, in corporates? Um, are there sort of uh, similarities that you can pull from Jess's experience with children? 100% in terms of the importance of, of seeing yourself. Just think about, for example, you know, if I, if I as a Black woman am applying to, to work at your organization, and I look around and I don't see any other people of color there or all the people of color I see are in entry level roles and maybe they've been there for quite some time and I don't see anyone moving up. How am I going to feel like there's a place for me to grow and succeed there? For myself, when I reflect on my career, I think that specifically in television news, I'd say that lack of representation in my career led to a form of my own kind of self-harm. Because when I looked around, I saw women who are successful, the women who became successful in this business, television news business, were thin, white, and had very long hair. And so I or try to shoehorn myself, my body, into that image because I felt that that's what I needed to do in order to succeed. And without going into every gory detail, when I tell you that I tried to shoehorn my body, any woman can understand what we already put ourselves through on a daily basis just to attain standards of beauty far less one that I physically could never morph myself into. And that does something to your psyche. It took me years to recover, to regain my self-confidence, a positive self-image, to be able to walk into a newsroom and stand in my blackness as opposed to wanting to do everything I could to hide it. No, oh, thank you, Camille, for that. And, and I think it's it's so challenging to talk about, you know, I, obviously I live and breathe the entrepreneurship world and we we talk about um, the lack of, you know, if we, we look at black, black women entrepreneurs, for example, we see no investment going to black women entrepreneurs. 2% of VC capital goes to women identifying entrepreneurs. And then the data on where that's actually going to black women is abysmal. We have no information and nobody's prioritizing that information. Um, and we ask, you know, why don't we see more women trying to you know become entrepreneurs? Why more black women are entering into the space and scaling companies? We don't have enough of those illustrations. They don't get as much real estate as, you know, these, you know, white tech founders from downtown Toronto that have a very same similar experience and very similar kind of um, experience on paper. Um, and 
I think the frustration that I'm also feeling is, okay, we keep talking about this. We keep having this conversation over and over. We've recognized this massive gap and we want sort of, we have this energy pulling and trying to bring in more black women, for example, into the entrepreneurship space, but we're not putting enough focus on those outcomes that you mentioned, Camille. Like I love sort of shifting um, that, that framework not just looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, but sen- setting really concrete outcomes and keeping ourselves accountable to that point blank. Like, and then having you know these other elements, Jess's programming, obviously being so important to to have those conversations as you're growing up and seeing those um, those examples. Um, but what is your sense on the this kind of like? lack of bias for action, I guess, is the way that I would describe it. Um, do you see that still happening in organizations? Do you see people actually putting commitments forward to change um, some of these statistics that we do see or these these huge gaps? Um, that is sort of my day-to-day frustration that, you know, I want to stop talking about it and actually see more more change. What's, what's your take on that? And you're talking that? specifically about entrepreneurial funding with Black women, right? We, yeah, we are just entrepreneurship in general. Um, What's what's sort of the action that can be taken other than, you know, making those concrete outcomes that you've sort of mentioned in, in framework before? Here's the thing. When I look around at, let's just take just the Black Canadian community. I see Black women starting businesses at alarming rates. So it's not that Black women are not leaning towards entrepreneurship. Black women in fact, historically, have always thrived in entrepreneurship because historically, that was the only choice we had. We were not welcome in the workplace, okay? So black women live and breathe entrepreneurship because that is how we fed our families, right? What I see though, is that for it to, to, for, Black women's businesses to get on your radar or on the, the, the mainstream radar, it only happens when a much bigger company wants to eat it up, wants to co-opt it, wants to take it and fold it into their business. Nothing wrong with, listen, if, if someone came along and offered me a million dollars for the business, I would seriously consider it. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being acquired, right? It should be your goal to sell your business. What I'm saying to you is that people only care when they can directly benefit from another Black woman's business. And it takes them longer to get to that place, right? Because they don't see the value. It's difficult for them to see the value. Anecdotally, we can look at examples. We can look at um, Dragon's Den and um, what's the other one? Um, Shark Tank. Tank and whatnot. And there's a, I can't remember which one of them this woman was on. Dragon's Den is a Canadian one. Shark Tank is the US one, right? I believe it was Shark Tank yeah. with, what's his name? Kevin, Mr. O'Leary. And this, this one stuck <laughs> out to me. It was this black woman mm-hmm. who started a vegan lipstick line. And the lipstick colors had like really bright colors, all these like different cool colors, right? But she started it vegan because she had so many allergies and like problems with, um, with over-the-counter makeup, right? And 
she so so you know you have your gimmick coming with the with the with the product when you pitch. So she had a bunch of girls wearing, and they were I believe they were mainly black girls wearing all the different colored lipsticks. And he made a comment to her saying, "You all look like colorful cockroaches." And of course that went viral because of the racial undertones of that. And he simply couldn't grasp the demand that was out there from black women who have historically been told you can't wear that color and who also are making a huge shift to wellness and ethical products and supporting other black women. He could not grasp that, that that would make him money. Less than a few years later, this woman's line is now in Target, is now in here, is now all over the damn place, right? And it just, it was such a good example in how when you're, when, some, when something doesn't look like what you are accustomed to looking like, to, to seeing, or you, you just, you denounce it, you, you dismiss it, right? And this is how Black women's businesses get dismissed every day when they go for a bank loan, when they, when they pitch it to someone in an elevator at a networking conference. That from the moment that, that you're, you're pitching something black related to a white dude, he, he, turns, he turns off, which is so interesting to me because as an investor, I would just be looking, how can this make me money? Like that's, that's my goal, right? Market potential, my yeah. Mind yeah. How they just won't even take the time to look at the numbers, to look at the, the buying power of people of color, specifically women, is, is, is rising astronomically. The numbers are right there. So it just still freaks me out that they just so easily dismiss the opportunity to make money. You have to literally hit them on the head with it before they will invest in, in, in a business like that. The business imperatives. I know just looking at the concrete numbers, the potential market, the potential, you know, revenue to be brought in. I, and that I think is where this frustration comes that like, we see that this would be good for business. We see all of this potential, you know, yes, we need more women investors to invest in more women. We've seen a huge jump actually in more women investors in the last year, but we've seen no budge in the amount of investment going to women led businesses, Never mind, you know, looking at the intersectionality there as well. So that, that, sort of frustration. I, I feel so, I'm so there with you, Camille. And and to our listeners as well, um, it's challenging. It's challenging to constantly hear this in every conversation that when you're entering into entrepreneurship, that there are going to be these barriers, there are going to be these hurdles. Um, and there's great power in community. There are resources. There are people calling out various types of investors and government and you know private sector to use their purchasing power in a different way. Um, but this is, is still very frustrating that we're still having this conversation in 2022 and beyond and have not made even a smidge of progress in my mind to what you know the, the sort of market potential should have yielded, um, especially during the pandemic when people were trying new products left, right, and center when they were home, you know, not spending money elsewhere. There was so much potential. Um, so I guess there's not really a, a concrete sort of end next step is, but um, this frustration I think is really felt across so many of our listeners, um, our team, and, and the communities that all of us are a part of. 
So going back to some of the, the comments that we've made earlier around where diversity, equity, and inclusion at work can usually start. So we've talked about hiring, we've talked about job descriptions. Once somebody is actually brought into an organization, if it's you know the first hire coming into a company or the 500th hire coming into a larger institution, what happens then? What are some of those first steps that organizations can take to actually create a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment for those staffs? Um, Camille, what, what first steps do you usually recommend um, when you're consulting with those types of groups? Well, for me, pay equity is a big one, right? Um, and it's really important, no matter how big or small, for you to examine the way that you deal with pay equity. Um, what I will say is that, again, this is another one of those things that seems very radical, but I've, I've been seeing particularly a lot of women-led businesses um, lead with pay transparency, which means that they have a system where everyone knows what everyone else makes. And that's really radical in our current workplace culture because our current workplace culture threatens employees for talking about what they make makes employees think that it's illegal to talk about what they make. This is a really sticky one that we could go on to talk about for a long time because it, 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 it really underlines a lot of the power imbalances that exist in the workplace. And so it's important for you to look at how are we dealing with pay equity. And the reason it's so sticky is because it requires us to let go of what we have been taught and what we believe about who deserves what and why. We've been set up with this idea that, and I could, tell, I could admit to you, this was something so hard for me because you're like, as an immigrant, you know, like you work hard and, you know, like your parents always tell you like, you know, I, 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 we've sacrificed so much for you all. And, you know, you got to make sure that you did it. And if I work hard at this job, if I was able to negotiate more in the interview, then I deserve more. That's, that's how I felt. And I think that's how a lot of people feel until you start to realize what positions of privilege that I have that allowed me to negotiate better in that interview? Why do I deserve more just because I happen to know how to negotiate? Versus if Jess has actually, actually has a higher skill set than I do, but didn't know that you shouldn't accept the first offer. Didn't know that. Was brought up to believe that you got a job, amazing, take it. So you can provide for your family. You can send back money to X, Y, and Z, right? That's what a lot of us are living with, okay? Why do I deserve more than Jess? Because I had that piece of information and she did not. These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. So. The reason it's sticky is because as an organization, as a small, as a startup now, you have to think about what is my entire ethos around pay equity. It's not just like, okay, we're going to do this policy. We're going to adopt this. It's rethinking your entire value system. That's why it's hard work. Hmm. 
That's, that's such an important part. And in the so pay, pay equity, we talked about hiring on the HR side. Um, are there any other ways that teams can be having conversations around this? Other pieces of advice that you have for organizations uh, beyond sort of the, the individual HR experience of one, one employee? What other advice um, have you sort of contemplated or you explore with other corporates? Is there anything else that sort of peaks? Well, a big one is the complaints process. And mm, great. that might sound like it's HR business, um, but it applies to everyone. And I, and I shouldn't call it complaints process. I'll call it conflict resolution. How do we as a company, do we avoid conflict or do we lean into it? Do we, like, how, how do we deal with when things come up? I think it's fair to say, as Canadians, we're very conflict averse, right? And we will run for our lives away from having a difficult conversation. And so what ends up happening is that we rather move people around. This is what I've seen, right? In organizations big and small, instead of address the harm that has taken place, and look to first restorative justice processes um, and thinking about how can we apply that to the workplace. We either move the person around or we rather fire them or, or force them to quit. And that's everyone's, that's not HR business. That's everyone's business, especially in, in a startup. There's no HR in a startup. Let's keep it real. <laughs> okay. You're the HR. <laughs> Okay, so again, we need to think about what is our ethos around this? How will we deal when someone says, you have harmed me? What you said or did caused me harm. How do we deal with that? Those are some important things to to keep in mind when starting and continuing any, any level of business. Fantastic prompts there, Camille. Yeah, I, I, I love those prompts and, and those considerations. I would love to get both of your opinions on, on this question, I guess. Being, is a diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization a destination or a journey? Are you ever done with this process and say, I absolutely have a diverse, an equitable, and a fully inclusive 100% company? Jess, what are your thoughts on that statement? I personally think it's absolutely a journey. Um, I don't think there's a single perfect way to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive as an organization. I mean, if we think about all the different aspects there are to a business, there's equally, if not more, ways to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive, right? Um, You have all those factors from like the people that are working at the organization, your hiring practices, your location, your type of work, your customers. Um, those all are factors that are really going to drive um, how you are um, implementing those DEI um, aspects. And I think we've seen so many organizations in recent years um, introduce and adopt quality um, DEI practices, but there's still so much to be done at the same time. And um, there's organizations that are aware of um, the room that they have to improve in this space and who 
are committing to actionable steps to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive. And that those are the ones that are ultimately on the right journey. And um, those organizations that are following those steps and actually following through with uh, the statements that they're making are, by example, then showing other organizations what is possible. Camille, what's your take? I think it's a journey with destinations along the way. Mm, I like that. Because there it's ha- not just wandering. No, because <laughs> yeah. there have to be outcomes. And you can't just keep leaning on this, well, we're on a journey. We're on our journey. I hear that a lot. Like, oh, you know, or oh, we're at the beginning of this journey. Okay, where's the next stop, man? <laughs> I want to be there. Where's where do where is the next stop? That's what you need to keep asking yourself. What is the next stop on our journey? I love that. I love that. And and there's so many different ways you could be going east, west, north. There's different journeys you could be going on. Backtracking a little bit, uh, getting on a plane, getting on a train to get there. There's different vehicles that are going to bring you there. Well, I like this analogy. <laughs> Follow that. Uh, but I think that's also helpful in approaching this a little bit more incrementally, right? To say that you need to travel this very far distance to get to this destination can feel more daunting. Um, If you're looking at these milestone kind of destinations that you can be accountable for and that you can, you know, be publicly accountable for as well to different stakeholders. I think that's, um, that, that feels easier to kind of swallow through, through this journey or through this kind of evolution of what that looks like. I love that. With, um, you know, the future, can you know, we've had so many conversations, I feel like in the last couple of years, this has clearly been a topic that, uh, you know, journalists are talking about, that corporates are discussing more than they ever have. Um, customers are even looking at the businesses that they're supporting in a very different way. Um, but as we've mentioned, we still have a long way to go. Um, Camille, do you have any kind of concrete um, actions or calls to action to our listeners or sort of recommendations at large of what will be important for us to get to the next step or to get to this um, kind of not that end of the line of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, but farther into that direction. It may not seem concrete when I say this, but the most important thing that I think a person or an organization needs moving forward is, is humility. And to step out of our egos. Humility meaning to humble yourself to the rest of the world. Meaning that none of us are at the center. Mm. None of us, right? Humble ourselves to the reality that just because something hasn't happened to us doesn't mean it's not real. The reason this is the most important for me is because it is what is needed to open ourselves, our minds to other people's realities. Before we start, oh yeah, we're gonna um, implement this data data process and then we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. But do you know why? Is your team bought in on why we're implementing this new hiring process? That, that to me is the most important thing. It's the mindset before the mm. implementation. I love that. Jess, what do you think? What's going to be important to really get to diversity, equity, inclusion? I'm honestly on the exact same page. I think really um, we have to address things on an individual basis before we're really trying to tackle things on this big 
corporate organizational level, right? So if we're individually showing empathy and actively listening to those around us, that's how we're then going to be able to be human centric and how we develop these diverse, equitable and inclusive solutions instead of just making assumptions on what we think is the right direction to go. And so really taking it more on an individual level, um, then uh, we can translate that over to the greater culture of the organization truly by just listening and understanding each other's lived experiences. Hmm. And Bina Books does such a beautiful job. Like you're narrowing in to have this beautiful illustration of an individual person's experience and seeing themselves kind of mirrored back to them in the products that you're developing. So I feel like that's a really beautiful kind of full circle, right? To the, the really crucial importance of, of having that as a resource, as an educational tool um, and, and the limitless possibilities of what you're going to be able to accomplish at the individual and then collective level to have that type of um, educational platform. So kudos, Jess. I'm so excited about the evolution of all Thank the Thank you. Kayla, I'll just add that while the, our individual mindsets are crucial and important, in a workplace setting, I don't want founders or CEOs, anyone to think that their goal should be to like change the hearts and minds of everyone at the company. Because mm-hmm. you're never going to do that. What you need to do after you change the key stakeholders, the decision makers, once you are all on a similar or agreed upon path or mindset, you now need to implement systems that cannot be permeated by mindsets that are not in favor of that new system, if you understand what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. So that... You can have a workplace where new systems that are put in place, equitable systems that are put in place, can withstand people who don't agree with them. They can still work there. They can still think what they think. But in this workplace, here are the decisions and outcomes that we need you to carry out. It's the systems, right? Yeah, the the clarity. That's a great point, Camille. Absolutely. Talking about resources and community and all of these, uh, you know, fabulous um, topics that that warm my heart. I'm very practically rooted in these conversations often, and I love to hear, you know, what has been helpful for founders and leaders in their journey, because there is so much out there. We have information overload in thought leadership and templates, and you know, there's so much to absorb. From your experiences, what have been some really core, um, you know, leaders that you find really admirable? You know, Camille, you mentioned a great leader earlier in our conversation. Um, are there any podcasts, any other resources that we can point our listeners to so that they continue to do some of this work? Um, Jess, has there been anything helpful for you, particularly as a tech founder um, in uh, in your space? Yeah, so I think um, as an entrepreneur that really started during the pandemic, the um, whole finding the community thing was a little bit of a struggle at first, but something that now, now I value so much. And as you said previously, like entrepreneurship can be lonely, but there are people out there and um, really taking those steps to maybe if you're shy, I'm pretty shy, but just trying to go out and network and go to events or participate in these entrepreneurship communities. Um, you'll soon be able to find people that do share similar identities to you or people that you can share those lived experiences with. So for me, um, when we first started uh, Bino Books, we participated in a few accelerator programs. 
Um, there was one through Queen's University, through the Dunan Dishpande Queen's Innovation Center. And then we also did League of Innovators, which is an online community, um, I think, out of BC. Um, those are really great for us to connect with other founders that were at a similar stage to us, but also um, had those shared experiences with us and that we could go through that journey together. And now coming out of the pandemic, um, going to different entrepreneurship events. So me being from Ottawa, Ontario, um, I've been going to um, events through uh, Thai Canada and Invest Ottawa. And those have been really fantastic to have that face-to-face connection with people and then also uh, really get to know entrepreneurs that have uh, similar experiences. Amazing. And that's where I met Jess. Yeah. <laughs> was at a Capital Angel Network in conference. So yeah, it's it's really special being able to connect in person these days, Jess. Thanks for that. Great list of resources. Camille, what do you recommend? A couple amazing professionals on LinkedIn that I follow. I already mentioned Lily Zhang, Madison Butler, my also very close friend and colleague, Tennille Warren. Um, these are amazing minds um, that you can follow and tap into. In terms of um, entrepreneurs, Claudette McGowan is one of the most powerful Canadian women in business that I have ever met. And she and some of her colleagues started um, an organization called Phoenix Fire. Um, And they launched an angel fund focused on women entrepreneurs. So I would encourage you to follow them and take advantage of any and all programming that, that they offer. Great recommendations. There are also Sandpiper Ventures, um, which is women-led, the, uh, the 51, the Forum, so many other great um, women-led uh, support organizations. That's a great list as well, Camille. As we wrap up this very meaty conversation, final pieces of advice, of wisdom, um, of experiences, anything that you want to um, get off your head or your heart uh, to conclude our conversation today. Camille, let's throw it over to you first. Own your education. Own, you know, don't place the burden of your education on folks who may have already been marginalized. Own your mistakes, but don't allow them to stand in the way of your efforts to change in equitable systems. Decide what kind of behaviors or patterns you want to stop doing and which ones you'd like to start doing. Think about the kinds of people you want to partner with as you grow into a new mindset on equity. And you know what? You'll also have to think about the kinds of people you want to leave behind. Those people could be close friends. It could even be your entire workplace that no longer aligns with your values. But you'll find that there is less and less room for your value compromise when you become committed to justice for everybody. That's that's a beautiful line to end on there. I just got chills, Camille. That was I love that. Um, that's definitely my post-it moment of today. Woof, Jess. The final pieces of advice. That's the hard. I, I don't know follow. how I taught that. <laughs> I think um, I think a huge thing for me that I've been really realizing lately is just to be empathetic all around. Um, there's so much that people are dealing with just outside of their professional lives that you might not know about, um, whether that's related to their identities or not. And um, especially to be an ally as well to people of marginalized identities that are um, probably still trying to find their space, whether it's in the startup world or in the corporate world, Uh, being an ally and listening to those people is huge. And if you have the capacity to do so, to make actionable change, um, get the ball rolling. 
I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Thank you so much, Camille. Um, thanks for taking time on the Startup Women podcast for sharing your experiences. Um, and uh, thank you for everything both of you are doing. Um, it's really, really been a, been a privilege to talk to you both today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Jess and the work she's leading at Beano Books, head to www.beanobooks.swear.site. For training, advocacy, speaking, and more from Camille, head to www.camilledundas.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles and is made possible with the support of BDC and Scotiabank so we can continue to power women identifying entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.